In agriculture, it seems like we have exponentially more examples of people collecting data than we do of people actually using data to unlock real value, supported by real dollars. Well, cattle genetics company Leachman Cattle are one of those few companies who've demonstrated the ability to do just that. You know, we kind of had set our own course to, to analyze our own data, to gather our own data, to store it. And that's just been part of our model. It certainly wouldn't have been the cheapest route to go. Um, but if you go the cheapest route, which is you put your data in a breed association, then we wouldn't have had any proprietary data or indexes. And I think it is that information and the way we use that information that, that led to the uh, opportunity that we had to do business with Euros. That's Lee Leachman and Eurus, who he mentioned there at the end, just agreed to acquire a majority stake in his company, Leachman Cattle, to take these proven proprietary genetics and build programs around them that optimize the entire value chain. We want to build systems that capture value for dairy farmers and, and beef cattle ranchers that bring more money back to the farm. And to do that, we've got to optimize these animals from conception to consumption and we've got to have enough structure to pass the value back. Lee Leachman chats with Jeanette Barnard on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow Agner. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, today's episode and really every episode this quarter is brought to you by the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders just like you to implement it. And that's your Soy Checkoff. Whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line. Having a sound plan delivers results, and you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways that your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. That's unitedsoybean.org. And thank you very much to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and the future of agriculture culture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Lee Leachman of Leachman Cattle of Colorado. Lee's going to share more about his background and his company during the conversation, but I actually wasn't a part of this one. This interview was conducted by my good friend and occasional co-host on this show, Jeanette Barnard. Longtime listeners, I'm sure, will know Jeanette from previous episodes that she's co-hosted here with me, and I hope all of you are already subscribers to her weekly email newsletter, which is called Prime Future. You can go sign up for that at primefuture.substack.com. So, uh, uh, Jeanette, actually, let's start there before we dive into today's episode. You this year made the strategic decision to offer a paid option for your newsletter. So now you can get either one newsletter per month for free. Just go to that website and sign up. Uh, or you can choose to be a paid subscriber, in which case you get one every single week. And it's only nine dollars a month. Totally worth it, in my opinion. Uh, but for somebody who might be listening and maybe is not familiar with your work, can you just talk a little bit uh, about Prime Future? Uh, thanks for the plug there, Tim. Yeah, so Prime Future, it's a weekly newsletter for innovators in livestock, meat, and dairy. And I say it was kind of my COVID project, right? It was uh, March of 2020, and I was grounded along with everyone else. And I was like, I need some outside connection with the world. And I'm just going to start talking about topics that I'm interested in in an attempt to find other people who are also interested in those topics. And kind of the, the sandbox from a topic perspective is all around innovation and trends 
sometimes new technology, but sometimes just new trends in the industry and really looking across the entire value chain from what happens on the farm to what happens at, at retail. And I appreciate that you said the move to go paid was strategic because what I'm finding is anything in this process is just kind of a series of small experiments, right? And it's just trying something to see what works. And I kind of had gotten to a point where, you know, the audience is in, is in the thousands now. Um, a lot of people are telling me, hey, this is really valuable content. And I said, you know what? I'm going to see if people mean what they say. And, um, you know, I think when you're launching any new business that what a prospective customer tells you before they write a check is completely meaningless <laughs> and, and, and it's completely worthless. It's what they say when you give them a decision point to put their dollars uh, where their mouth is. That's what actually matters. And that's what actually tells you what's the value of a new product. And so I kind of saw this as no different. And so it's really been an interesting process since making that decision. And I really approach this whole content game from the standpoint of I'm learning out loud. I want to talk to interesting people like Lee Leachman. And so what does that mean to package that up in a way for Prime Future subscribers that continues to bring them more value? Yeah, that's kind of my goal is to learn alongside those folks. All right. Well, keep up the great work on that. I am a very happy paid subscriber, and I know there's several others just like me. I would encourage anyone listening to, to join me, especially if you like the content that we're about to share with you here in today's episode. And speaking of which, why don't you tell us about today's story and, and what made it something that you wanted to explore further and share with the FOA audience? Yeah, absolutely. So today's episode is an interview with Lee Leachman of Leachman Cattle. And uh, listeners may have read that Eurus, the genetics company, recently acquired majority stake in Leachman Cattle. And this was a this was a big splash across the cattle industry, across the genetics world. And I just wanted to interview Lee and hear him talk about the journey of the business. Part of what fascinates me about this, number one, is um, there have not been a lot of deals like this on the beef side. So this is a different deal structure between a seed stock producer like Leachman Cattle and, and a large genetics company. So it's interesting from that angle because it kind of signals there's some change happening in the cattle genetics world. But more importantly, what I think Lee has done with his business is what a lot of people aspire to do in agriculture. And that is to build a, a business and increase the value of that business based on the ability to capture and leverage data. And Tim, I don't know if you saw it or not, but this just this week, there was a, an article in the Wall Street Journal. It was about ag tech adoption. And, and one of the issues it called out is that there's been a lot of talk about ag tech adoption, but A, adoption has been a lot slower than what many would have liked. And B, there's a lot of data that's available, but getting value from that data for customers is still really challenging. And here's a Lee Leachman, a cattle producer who has done that. He has done the hard thing. And the entire reason that his business is so valuable is because of their proprietary database, their proprietary index indexes and the way that they're approaching uh, their customers and the decisions that they are enabling their customers to make, which is kind of the holy grail from a data perspective. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get to it here. Without further ado, we'll drop into the conversation of the winding road that included for Lee a Harvard education, a stint in management consulting, ending up losing one business, then becoming an employee and eventually resuming ownership of Leachman Cattle to grow it into what it is today. Here's Jeanette's interview with Lee Leachman of Leachman Cattle of Colorado.
Yeah, so uh, of course I'm a third generation seed stock producer. So my grandfather started in the 1930s. He and his brother went to Ohio State University and their selection criteria was very visual and success was determined on whether or not you won the show. <laughs> so it was pretty straightforward. Um, and if you won the show, you could sell them for a lot of money and they won almost all the shows and they won them repeatedly. They're both in the Angus Hall of Fame here in the United States. Right around 1970, they sold that business. My dad went into the corporate structure. He lasted about a year. He uh, then moved to Montana. He always wanted to move out west. The first business was based in upstate New York because, of course, that was where a lot of seed stock were and a lot of money was at the time in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. So my dad moved west. He wanted to sell commercial bulls to ranchers, and he started performance testing. He started crossbreeding in 1970. And he built a business called Leachman Cattle Company, and that was based in Billings. I got out of college in 1988 with a degree in economics. He sent me off to Harvard. He said, if you go to Harvard, I won't have to unteach you all the bad things you'll learn from an animal breeding degree. And uh, so, so he didn't. Uh, I studied economics, did a little stint in management consulting over one summer. And then uh, before I got out of college, did some consulting for King Ranch and probably my uh, my undergraduate degree in animal breeding came from the work with King Ranch. We analyzed a lot of data and put together a breeding program for them that sort of redirected the Santa Catruda circa 1987. And uh, then, of course, I came into the business and we were selling a lot of bulls, several thousand bulls by the time um, that business wrapped up. But uh, we kind of stalled out on how many bulls we thought we could sell. And uh, we um, got into a, a branded beef program. That was my idea. It was a really really bad idea because we were not sufficiently capitalized. It really was a Piedmontese natural beef program. It was, was hard to teach people how to cook that meat properly. It was a great product, but you know, by integrating from birth through to harvest, you get all the profit or all the loss. And of course, we were taking in the, the packing sector. And about the time we did that, uh, both the feedlot sector and the packer sector lost money. And it sucked all the equity out of our family business and we dispersed. That was in 2003. It was a more expensive learning process than going to Harvard, um, but I also learned more from it than going to Harvard. So I guess that was okay. <laughs> and uh, so then we uh, started our business over in Colorado in 2003. A friend of mine, Dallas Horton, bought the business. We uh, worked for Dallas for about six years, bought the business from him, and uh, we've been growing ever since. Wow. Okay. So I always find these near-death experiences of companies or in this event, like a, a full-on death experience of the business. I find them so inspiring, especially when people find a way to then come back bigger and better than ever. And it's just amazing because, you know, I've been following Leachman Cattle for a few years. I had no idea about that part of your story. And I can only imagine some of the things you learned from that. Just Just to kind of drill down on that a little bit. I mean, you guys went into this branded beef program before that was a cool thing to do. So was it more of how you were capitalized? Was it more of the timing? Was it more of choosing Piedmontese specifically? Like what would you do differently or how do you anticipate that that would have gone differently if you were to do it now versus then? Um, yeah, <laughs> we could do a whole podcast on that. I think for starters, we didn't understand that business well enough. Secondly, it was all fresh. And so supply management was an enormous problem for us. We were building customers for that division when 9-11 hit. And uh, 
we were selling mainly to food service and restaurants, so that was a bad timing issue. And then as we rebuilt in the retail sector, that's when the margins at the feeder and packer level went so, so negative. I remember Russell Cross, you probably know who Russell Cross is. Uh, Russell Cross met with me when I was a very young man. We were on a, at a meat and livestock board meeting in the, the Pacific Northwest. And Russell said, just remember, Lee, someone can take a fed animal in Billings, truck them to Colorado, harvest them, put them in a box, and haul them back to Billings for about $150 less than what you can harvest that animal for in Billings. And uh, he said, you know, you got to be careful with these branded strategies. And of course, Russell was right and we were wrong. So there were, there were just a lot of things we didn't know how to do. I think that taught us a lot. It wasn't enough to have a good idea. It's not enough to have a good product. Things like distribution, capital structure, supply chain management are critical things. And uh, let's face it, branded beef programs require a lot of capital. And we didn't, we were not sufficiently capitalized. Interestingly, that business is, is still alive today. It's a natural Piedmontese business. But, uh, you know, we were, we were just not prepared to take it to where it needed to go. Okay, Lee, this is how I know that we are kindred spirits is because in 17 minutes, I have a Prime Future edition that's scheduled to publish. And it is all about distribution and how important distribution is. That it's not enough to have a great product. You also have to have great distribution. So that is a whole other path we could go down. Oh, well, that's really what the Urus Leachman deal is about, right? Urus is, is, is a fundamentally a tremendous distribution partner. Okay, so, so let's go ahead and jump there. Tell us, tell us about the Urus Leachman deal. Yeah, so I think you know we were out in the market looking for capital. We knew that we had a good product to cross on dairy. But looking at the uh, supply chain, we said, look, the only way we're going to break into beef on dairy is to either convince feedlots to pay more for the calves or have a distribution partner that's already selling semen into those dairies. And uh, we decided we were going to raise capital to fund a, uh, a research and development feedlot where we would gather more data on the beef on dairy and demonstrate that we had best-in-class performance. And it was, it was that capital search that led us to uh, the relationship with Eurus. And of course, they have a huge market share and they have distribution into 80 countries. And uh, they're selling uh, a straw of semen effectively once every second somewhere in the world. Sell about 30 million straws a year and half of that's beef. And so the idea of, of teaming up with a a company that was uh, very strong in database, um, had a unique business model that was scalable in terms of the number of bulls we produce, and uh, had a hybrid population that was particularly suitable or well-suited for the U.S. beef on dairy market. It just was a natural fit. Right. Okay, I want to dig into the pieces of your business and what made your business interesting to Eurus. Because, so... Every article that I've seen has called out kind of three components. They talk about the quality of your genetics, they talk about your proprietary data, and they talk about your unique business model. So you kind of alluded to those earlier, but let's, let, let's deep dive into those. And if we can, let's start with your business model. How is your business model different from every other seed stock producer? Yeah, it's not so unique today. It was when we started. So we started using cooperators in about 1982, I believe. So we've been using cooperators for about 40 years. But the idea is that in beef cattle, unlike poultry and, and swine, 
you know, it doesn't really pay you to have incredibly large nucleuses under centralized management. It's not very efficient. And the uh, capital structure to own the land and the cows doesn't generate a very favorable return on investment. So because of that, you have to kind of try to figure out ways to, to work around that. So my father um, realized that, you know, he was going to kind of lead on the marketing side and the genetic management side and find ranchers who maybe weren't good at those two things, who wanted to raise cows, particularly seed stock cows, and raise and market bulls through our company. And so that started in the early 1980s. Um, of course, today, a lot of systems, bull systems, use cooperators. You know, Thomas's use cooperators. Brown's in Texas use cooperators. 44 Farms has cooperators. So this idea is not that novel today. But I think that the, the piece that's interesting about ours is that we collect all the data from all those breeders. And then we also provide data services to some of our competitors. And because of that, we, we sort of function like a small private breed association that also breeds cattle, multiplies cattle, and markets cattle. And that was probably the part of it that was sort of unique. Okay. I'm guessing that that evolved over time. Yeah, so we're a, about a $12 million in sales company that was spending on R&D like we were a $30 million company. And we took every dime we made in the business for the last 30 years and plowed it into R&D. And uh, for a long time there, that didn't look like such a great idea. <laughs> yeah, because you're wondering when you're going to get paid, right? But I think, you know, it was always my belief that, that we were doing the right thing, that we were making the cattle better. And I think at the end of the day, we, we also kind of had a strong belief in the hybrid model. Certainly seems to have been fairly dominant in the other species. And we believe in hybrid vigor. We think it's important in cattle, especially beef cattle. You know, we kind of had set our own course to, to analyze our own data, to gather our own data, to store it. And that's just been part of our model. It certainly wouldn't have been the cheapest route to go. Um, but if you go the cheapest route, which is you put your data in a breed association, then we wouldn't have had any proprietary data or indexes. And I think it is that information and the way we use that information that, that led to the uh, opportunity that we had to do business with Euros. Absolutely. So maybe can you talk a little bit more about what data do you collect and what are your mechanisms for collecting that data? Yeah. So um, I think the core strategy is we want to collect data on anything that's economically relevant. Things that we collect that most people maybe don't collect, you know, still shockingly small number of herds in the U.S. and globally collect feed intake data. So we want, we want animals to grow as fast as they can, but we don't care how much they eat, <laughs> which is kind of a silly approach and certainly not what swine and poultry breeders have done, right? They're, they're very focused on that. And so we made it a priority over the last really 15 years to collect lots of feed intake data and to develop mechanisms to select for that. So that was, that was one major piece. We've got a good database that measures the reproductive success of the cow. And as it turns out for sustainability, that's probably more important for the beef cow than is the feed intake. Because it comes down to, you know, how many calves do you wean out or eventually harvest out of 100 cows? And so that comes down to reproductive success. And then we've always felt that you had to build a hybrid because we felt that the British breeds 
particularly Angus, marble exceptionally well. So marbling was critical. We felt that for a long, long time. And we collected lots of ultrasound data and more recently carcass data. That's pretty common. But we also felt that selecting for red meat yield was important. If you look at the other species compared to beef cattle, the other species put a lot of emphasis on cutability and meat yield. Because our industry is so fragmented here in the U.S., we don't put very much weight on that at all. Europe put a lot of emphasis on cutability and, of course, had very adverse effects on eating quality. I think we at Leachman tried to balance that and collected that information and selected for it in a balanced way. And then, you know, we do a lot of specialty traits like pulmonary artery pressure, which affects how they do at high altitude and, and how they do in the feedlot when they get uh, toward the uh, finishing stage and are heavy and uh, have trouble having their heart keep them with enough oxygen to survive. And uh, the pulmonary artery pressure selection helps that. Um, and now we're measuring a whole bunch of traits that I think are pretty unique. I mean, certainly when we started feed efficiency and in about 2007, that was pretty unique. And we're, we're gathering data on more traits now that are quite unique. But that's, that's kind of the key, I think, is to, is to use it or to collect the data. You know, some people try to go for maximum data, volume. But what's really important is maximum data quality in sufficient volume. And, and I think that's where our database has been really good. And then, and then we were really fortunate to get into a relationship with Zoetis. Um, and they calculate uh, genomically enhanced predictions for us on a weekly basis. So that's critical because we have real-time data. And then last but not least, we put those into indexes that are really not indexes. You know, everybody talks about selection indexes. Ours are really simulation models. So we actually simulate the profitability. And it's a slight difference, and, and the animal breeding specialists would tell you it's insignificant, but it leads us to use different animals than would a simple selection index. And so what we really are today seeing is the culmination of gathering the data accurately, analyzing it well, and then selecting for it in a way that maximizes our incremental profit improvement annually. I know in, in, in some species they call that the delta G, right? How much did genetics move the cost of production or the profitability of production? And we've been very focused on that for about 14 years. And of course, that's a cumulative thing. Okay. Okay. So I just find this really interesting because, you know, you guys have obviously found a super high value use case for predictive analytics. I mean, ultimately that's, you're, you're using this database in order to predict genetic performance and the impact on profit. And so given that, I mean, what's your view on how artificial intelligence and machine learning, how those are changing what's possible from a data analysis standpoint? And then what's your view on how those two, let's call them technology capabilities, will continue to transform the genetic space as it relates to livestock? Uh, I don't, no question that they'll transform the space. They're not having any impact right now in beef cattle, but they will. Of course, anybody who's fiddled around with AI knows that, that the hardest part about AI is asking AI the right question, right? <laughs> AI will answer the question you ask. Sometimes the question you ask is not quite the right question. And the answer AI gives you will show you that. Um, I think genetics is a lot like that, right? You can ask the question 
and and you know we do that every day, right? We say what trade is going to be important next, and and what do we want to analyze, and where's the next bit of money going to come from in our selection process. But then you also have to have a real world part of it. A friend of mine, Ian Hamilton, said to me one time. He said, you know, the key at Aviagen is that we had really good scientists who were predicting genetic change. But he said we were also really good at having the people in the field who worked with the animals who were watching what was happening to confirm that we were getting the response we wanted and almost as importantly that we were not getting any responses that we didn't want. Okay? And if we look at all the species, it's of course the responses we didn't want that end up being the big hiccups. And cattle are no different. As you exert selection pressure for the things you want, you're going to get some things you don't want. And, uh, you know, AI is not going to help you figure that out because AI doesn't know that this trait that you've never measured has suddenly become a problem, okay? What AI is going to do is it's going to help us figure out how to make more progress on the traits we've already measured. But I would tell you that most of our advantage today is in measuring the right traits. <laughs> it's not so much how we've analyzed it. It's more that we've gotten the important data and then we balanced it appropriately. You know, I think if we go back to the old analogy of Wayne Gretzky in hockey, I don't know if you're a hockey fan, but, you know, Gretzky was great because he skated to where the puck was going to be. I'm not sure AI is going to help us skate to where the puck's going to be. It might skate, help us skate to where the puck was. <laughs> okay. So, so we, you just got to be careful we ask the right questions, right? In, in beef cattle, more than maybe any other of the species, so say cattle in general, and same thing in dairy, the turn, the generation turn is so slow. You know, literally, the decisions we made today determine the harvest cattle that we're going to harvest four years from now. So it's like what you do tomorrow is for five years from now. So it's a really slow turn. So this point of skating to where the puck's going to be is really critical. And I think that's one of the reasons that we really see eye to eye with Eurus, we know that in cattle breeding companies, we're making decisions today based on the best information we have. But we also know that, that between now and, and, and when these products have their progeny go to market, you know, the, the conditions change and we may have to adjust mid-course. And so one of, I think, the strengths of our company is we've got a broad enough genetic base. You know, always for genetic companies, one of the questions, what's your nucleus herd size, right? And uh, as you know, if if you're willing to spend the money and have a bigger nucleus herd size, you can make faster genetic progress. In our case, we have a very large nucleus herd size, effectively. You know, we're getting information on 30-some thousand animals a year. Most private breeding companies will struggle to have that big a nucleus herd because it's, it's expensive. So really what we did, if you want to think about it, is we, we built a database and we built a business model that built an extensive nucleus herd that was profitable. Not highly profitable, just, just barely profitable, okay? But when you take that and put that into a value chain where you can monetize the true value of the animals, it suddenly becomes enormously profitable. And I, I think, you know, as we look at what we hope to do as we move forward with Eurus is we want to build systems that capture value for dairy farmers and, and beef cattle ranchers that bring more money back to the farm. And to do that, we've got to optimize these animals from conception to consumption. 
and, and we've got to have enough structure to pass the value back. In the beef cattle industry, there's a lot of people that are afraid that we're going to integrate like pigs and chickens. <laughs> and, and I'm like, that's never going to happen, okay? There's no such thing as a company anywhere that said, I want to own 3 million cows on, on uh, 60 million acres spread out across the United States. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's built a business plan for that. That's not going to happen. So the real question is, do you want to work as an independent rancher raising what you think is right, hoping that the market pays you enough to be profitable? Or do you want to work in a system that gives you really clear direction on how to build the best cow, how to build the best feeder animal, how to build the best carcass, and then brings the highest possible percentage of those dollars back to the farm? That's really the difference of what we're talking about. And I call it coordinated value supply chains. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's what's going to happen. We're going to use technology to coordinate it. And it has to happen at the farm level. In a dairy herd, we've got to mate the right cows with the right bulls. In a beef cattle herd, we really need to be thinking about the genetics that make the cow and then the optimal genetics to cross with that maternal cow line. That's never been the case historically, because historically the system was so broken, was so imprecise at discovering value, that it really didn't matter what you raised at the ranch and how you sold it, you were going to get about the same thing. But what we know today, and anybody who's fed out cattle, I mean, all you have to do is feed your cattle out and sell them on a grid and and you have the, the highest value carcass and the lowest value carcass out of your pen of cattle. And there's over $1,000 difference between the best and the worst. And, you know, we look at the dairy cow industry and they're so different than us, right? Because every dairy cow in America, I wouldn't say every, but I've got to say way more than 95% are sired by a bull that was in the top 100 list within his breed, Right. I mean, nobody uses a bull in the 30th percentile or 40th percentile or 60th percentile. And then you say, well, what's the bull like that sired the beef cow herd in America? Oh, their average rank is the 50th percentile. Wait, why do you do that? <laughs> uh, because that's the structure of the system. But what if, what if we could build cows that were sired by top 1% bulls? And then what if we could bring them back to top 1% bulls? changes the whole game. Right. So th first of all, this is 100% aligned with, with my worldview, right? That these types of collaborations are what makes sense or what adds value to every part of the value chain, which is going to lead to long-term sustainability from an economic standpoint and other standpoints as well. My question is, you talked about building the systems that help us capture value for dairy farmers and beef ranchers. What are the missing pieces of those systems today? What's preventing us from being able to do this today? Nothing. You didn't expect that, did you? I didn't. I, I, I did not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's really nothing. I, I'll tell you what's, what's missing is confidence. Confidence that the differences exist and that they can be produced consistently. And uh, I, I think... You know, yours is a very serious company. And I think this investment is a clear signal from them that they believe those differences on the beef side are real and they're material and that this value chain can be knit together. 
Without the value chain, my business selling bulls to ranchers is a tough business because we're, we're selling a, a high cost product. And if we make it elite, we don't necessarily get paid for making it elite because the people that buy our bulls don't get paid elite prices for their calves. In a value chain, that changes. And uh, I, I think that the, the differences have to be material enough to justify that. But today, let's say the average U.S. fed animal today is worth uh, $2,700. You know, we can easily produce differences that are well over $100 a head. And I think if we, if we build that in into two generations on the cow, you know, those differences are going to get well over $200 a head. You know, when you start talking about a 10% difference in margin in a business that doesn't have much cumulative margin from start to finish, then you change behavior. Alignment's the key. And, and it's really reteaching an industry that you can make more money by aligning than you can by, by simply transacting. Our business today on the beef side is very transactional, right? I mean, you, you hear feeders say it all the time. You make the most money on the buy, which really means if I buy them cheap enough, they make money. And, and you can't argue with that because in the absence of value signals, that might be the only value proposition. Buy them cheap, feed them cheap, and sell them on average. You make money. But, but what if there was a way to have cattle consistently fill your feedlot that were worth $100 more in the feedlot and $100 more in the carcass. There's not a feeder in America who wouldn't want that. The question is, can they measure it and do they believe it's there? You know, one of the things that's interesting now is we are starting to see a couple of these examples of supply chains that are being coordinated and they are consistently making money, um, whether that's for the retailer or the feeder or the packer. So it's, it's there. It's there today. We have the technology to do it today, but it does require a shift in mindset. It's the old paradigm shift. You know, we've been big advocates to our commercial customers. You have to be DNA testing your commercial replacement heifers today and using that genomic selection based on a good index to keep your cows right, but to also maximize the value of those calves. I mean, every slaughter animal has a mother, <laughs> and so she has to be selected for those traits. And, and, and I don't really think it's hard to balance the maternal and the post-weaning traits, but you've got to measure it all and, and you've got to use indexes that balance them appropriately. So, you know, I think DNA is a great tool to do that in the beef cow segment. Um, we're a long way from a place where a rancher buys in his replacement heifers and terminal crosses them. That may be where we end up. It may be that, that either you're going to be a maternal herd specialist and you're using sexed embryos and sex semen, and you're just multiplying these great females, or you're going to be a ranch where you terminally cross those females. But understand, what I just said is, is, like, is like I just spoke in, in Greek to most ranchers. They're like, no, 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 that's not how our ranch works. But when you study the economics of it, there are huge financial incentives that can come out of that type of a system. But until then, because we're, we're, you know, we're a decade or more off from that, I think, until then, um, it's going to be genomically testing heifers within your commercial herd to make sure that you've produced enough really good replacements and then make sure you're maximizing the calf value on the rest of your calves.
Of course, dairy cows are easier because they're all going to harvest, not the beef on dairy. <laughs> yes, yes. Much, 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 much cleaner and simpler and more straightforward there. So can you put it into perspective for us, though, when you say that commercial producers need to be DNA testing those replacement heifers? What percentage of replacement heifers today are genomically tested? Oh, gosh. Maybe a couple hundred thousand a year in the U.S. out of what has to be three million replacement heifers a year, maybe. So we're, we're still at the very, very, very beginning of this, let's call it adoption curve. The, the tool didn't really exist with any efficacy more than five years ago. Today, the value proposition gives you a three, four, five X ROI. Depends on your sampling technique. I, just look at it this way. You go to a bull sale tomorrow. Anybody goes to a bull sale tomorrow. The best bulls there they want to buy because they're going to help their herd. And the worst bulls there they don't want to buy. Now, every one of those bulls was done by what usually by a planned mating, either AI or naturally, by that seed stock breeder. And they still have good ones and bad ones. Now go to your commercial herd. You're breeding these commercial bulls. You're not hand mating. You're letting the genes fly, so to speak, and remix. And you get this set of heifer calves and you're going to go pick them visually. Guess what you find out when you DNA test them? There's more range in your heifer calves than there are in that bulls in that sale. And so just like there were bulls in that sale you wouldn't buy, there's heifer calves you should never keep that you would have had in your keeper pen that the DNA helped you find. And that changes the rate of improvement of that female herd. That's where the return on investment comes. And that's critical. Okay. I mean, this is, this is a race. It's like anything, right? Everybody's a little bit faster next year than they are this year. Well, in food production, that means that the, the chicken producers and the swine producers and the fish producers, you know, they're all making their animals better, faster than we're making the beef animal better. So we have to do everything we can to minimize how much slower we're going. That is fantastic framing. Yes, this is a race. So with that in mind, I mean, fast forward 30 years, let's just say 2050 for the sake of argument. How do you think that this plays out? At that point, what percent of the U.S. beef herd is in an aligned supply chain of some sort? Yeah, 2050, you're probably buying your females that are produced through sexed IVF embryos and you're terminal crossing the rest of your herd and your terminal cross bulls are probably owned by or financed by the value chain that you're selling the calves into. Because when they get your calves, they don't want you to have bulls from a bunch of different programs. They want you to have all of their specialized bulls. And those calves are being DNA'd, you know, at branding or younger to verify that they are the right combination. Some of those calves are going to fall out of spec just by a Mendelian resampling of genes. If anybody wants to know what that means, if you come from a big family, you and your siblings are not all the same. And that's the way it is even in full sim mating. So which DNA you get matters and DNA tests will show that. And then we'll manage those animals through systems with DNA information combined with visual technology cameras that are looking at how those animals grow. And uh, we're going to harvest those animals very close to their optimal harvest point, which is a big problem in the system today. We don't know where optimum is. We have unidentified cattle in a large pen, and we're harvesting them all on a given day. 
and one of those animals died 90 days too early, and one of those animals died 90 days too late, and we're missing a lot. And so the information will be there. They'll be traceable all the way through. I suspect within 30 years that maybe more than half of the beef produced in the United States will be in a value system. In other words, when your calf's born, you're going to know how that beef is going to be sold to the consumer. Now, that is a fascinating insight to end with. Thank you so very much to Lee Leachman for being on the show. And thank you very much to Jeanette Barnard for facilitating this conversation and bringing the story to the audience here. Definitely go check out Jeanette's newsletter over at primefuture.substack.com. I'll leave links for that as well as for Leachman Cattle of Colorado and Urus in the show notes for today's episode. Thank you as well to the Soy Checkoff for supporting this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Go check them out at unitedsoybeanboard.org. Last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Thank you.